0: So, two weeks off, what did I miss?
1: Oh my god, where do I start, Jackie? Protests, coronavirus resurgence, shock opinion polls, but most importantly, we got a new intro. From RTE News, this is States of Mind.
2: (laughs) This American
3: carnage. We've been
0: uh, fired at with
3: rubber bullets. Stops right here and stops right now. I do not believe
0: we're the dark, angry nation that Donald Trump sees in his tweets in the middle of the night. Your US election 2020 podcast
1: with Brian O'Donovan in Washington
0: and Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today... Now we have one more thing we need to do to walk in our true power, and that is to vote. We have to vote like our life depends on it.
2: This threatens to tear us apart. This is how America fails. It's not because we get invaded by some outside force. No, it's because we Americans can't get along. It's not like Black folks
3: suddenly woke up and said, hey, let's remove these a couple of years ago. they, They were problematic from day one.
0: Our new intro reflects, Brian, I think, the current push and pull between candidates, but also the mood on the ground. Much of our focus on this podcast has been on the presidential election on November 3rd. But on the same day, all 435 seats in the House of Representatives is up for grabs. And 35 of the 100 seats in the Senate, also other state and local elections, will be contested too. We ask the question here regularly, when something major happens, whether it's COVID-19, something Donald Trump or Joe Biden said, what effect will this have on voters? And while we don't know for sure until November 3rd for that, we can start getting some clues and answers in the form of primaries for those US House of Representatives and Senate seats.
1: That's right, yeah, Jackie. And I suppose the primary really is like the election before the election, if you will. It's when voters get a chance to pick the party's candidate. And now the biggest, most high-profile primary is, of course, the one that selects the presidential candidates and the one that Joe Biden has just come through on the Democratic side. House and Senate primaries are usually far more low-key affairs. Usually the sitting representative or senator is kind of left alone if they're running for re-election. The party won't really bother them. There won't be any challenges. Or you might have a case where party leadership might say, look, we're endorsing this particular candidate Again so leave them alone Don't challenge them From within their own party But there are lots of examples Of sitting politicians Being primaried Or ousted By someone From within their own party One of the big High profit examples Of this was back in 2018 When Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Who was a then Unknown 28 year old Ran against 10 term congressman And Democratic caucus chair Joe Crowley she defeated him in one of the biggest upsets of the 2018 midterm elections.
4: This victory belongs to every single grassroots organiser, every working parent, every mom, every L- member of the LGBTQ community. Every single person is responsible
0: for this. So we have these primaries, and at the same time, tens of thousands of people have been taking to the streets to protest racial injustice and systemic racism. And what we are seeing as the movement and the voices of that movement grow louder and louder, they're getting stronger and an unexpected footing in this election. Let's go to New York's 16th Congressional District now, Brian, and the story of a 16-term Democratic House of Representatives, Elliot Engel, and a middle school principal, Jamal Bowman.
1: Yeah, so Elliot Engel is a very senior, high-profile, well-known Democrat. He's been in the House of Representatives since 1989. He's the chairman of the powerful House Foreign Relations Committee. Now, he has come under fire in recent weeks for being absent during the COVID-19 outbreak in his New York district and for being absent and not speaking out during the Black Lives Matter protests that we've seen in recent weeks and months. He was challenged in his district's primary by former middle school principal Jamal Bowman He is an African-American first-time political candidate. He is progressive, he's a reformer, he campaigns on things like increasing investment in education, healthcare and green energy. And although Elliot Engel got big high-profile endorsements from the likes of Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, Andrew Cuomo, it wasn't enough to save his campaign, and the previously unknown Jamal Bowman is now the candidate.
2: You know, my best friend who's here tonight, I'll never forget the night he called me when I was out partying at a club and told me his brother was shot and killed. And at a very young young age, as a black man in America, you get to learn about death and homicide and suicide and how it impacts not just you individually, but your community and the rest of the country.
0: I read that Bowman's campaign had said that in May, he was getting roughly 30 to 40 signups a day George Floyd died on May 25th. By June 4th, the number of volunteers had doubled. By June 10th, it had tripled. He even nearly raised a quarter of a million dollars in three days in early June. That's almost a third of what he raised for the entire previous year. A week into June, he had surpassed a million dollars after endorsements, you know, those high profile ones from Sanders and Warren. It's extraordinary stuff. You, you mentioned it there as well, Brian. I didn't don't think it helped that engel who was also the chair of the house foreign affairs committee he had a scarce presence as he said in the district and was recently caught on hot mic at a protest saying that if he didn't have a primary he wouldn't even care
3: Say that again. I didn't
4: have a
0: We can also go to Kentucky too. This is the state of Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. The Democratic Party knows he's very difficult to unseat, but wanted to give him a run for his money with a strong challenger to make him work a little bit harder for his seat, which may distract him for a little for for a little time from the overall politics in Washington, D.C. over the next couple of months. So Amy McGrath, as they say over there, it just feels so wrong saying Amy McGrath. McGrath. I know, yeah. It's so wrong. McGrath uh, is approved by the top tier of the Democratic Party to do that job. And she was doing well, raising a lot of money, and it seemed like she would be a good challenger. But things changed.
1: Yeah, and as you said, Amy McGrath, in theory, ticked all the boxes as a candidate. She is a retired fighter pilot. As you say, she's been endorsed by all the senior figures in the Democratic Party. She looked to be a shoe-in for this nomination. But then the Black Lives Matter movement picked up steam and she found herself with a serious challenger in the form of Charles Booker. He is an African-American state representative who supports progressive policies like Medicare for All, the Green New Deal and universal basic income. He also campaigned against inequality and racial injustice. Now, he is from Louisville, Kentucky, where African-American woman Breonna Taylor was shot and killed by police. And he was very vocal, very visible on that issue his opponent, Amy McGrath, less so. And there was an awkward moment during a recent TV debate when she was asked if she'd attended any of the Black Lives Matter protests.
0: The protesters the last three days or in Lexington or elsewhere. Miss McGrath. I have not. And why? Well, I've been with my family and I've had some family uh, things going on this past weekend. But I've been following the news and, you know, and watching and and making sure that, uh, you know, I I think we're in the middle of a pandemic, so we also have to look at, you know, is that the place to be right now? So that that's really why.
1: I think what's also been very interesting to watch in all of this has been Donald Trump's reaction to some of this uh, racial unrest. At the weekend, he retweeted a video of one of his supporters shouting, white power. Now, he has since deleted that tweet, and the White House said he hadn't heard that chant when he retweeted the video, but it has still sparked a lot of anger out there. We're going to speak now to Cornell Belcher. He's the president of Brilliant Corners Research and Strategies. He's a pollster and a political strategist. Hi, Cornell. Brian here. How are you?
2: I'm well. How are you, Brian?
1: I'm very good, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll speak a little more in a a little while about the White House race and what impact racism, racial unrest will have on that particular contest. But let's look at other contests that are going to be happening in November. Earlier, we were speaking about the House and Senate races. And in recent days and weeks, I think we have seen the Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen the unrest have an impact on primaries, have we not, Cornell? And have you been watching this and has it been an interesting thing to see how it's been playing out in some of the primaries, be it New York, be it Kentucky? It seems to be having an impact.
2: There are a number of different variables at, at play here and, and the dynamics of this are still unfolding. What you can say from from the data, particularly when I, I point to Georgia, where they, the number of people engage in that primary, participating in the Democratic primary, they're tripled. Now, across the ocean, I know you all have great, a lot greater participation in, in, in politics and, and voting. Well, you all don't put up quite the hurdles to voting that we do in this country, the arsenal of democracy and all. But nonetheless, for us to triple the turnout and engagement for, for, for a race, for a primary, is startling, but it's also good news. There is evidence in that data. If you look at that that data and you look at the the participation of young people before the marches versus after the marches, and there is dramatic increase in the proportion of the electorate that were millennials after the marches started. And in this country right now, there's a, a great deal of question about whether or not that energy that we see on the streets, particularly among young people, will migrate and make its way into into politics and participation. I think there is some early evidence that that energy uh, will impact and, and will make its way uh, to, to political participation, if you look at some of the data there around the, the increases in participation, in particular increases of participation among young people. Because one of the things that, that is remarkable about, about the energy and the movement that you see on the streets here in this country is that it is, you know, the chant is Black Lives Matter, but it's, it's not a Black movement. And it is about racism, uh, particular racism towards Black people, but it's no, long, it's no longer a, a Black movement. If you look at the diversity, of the people who are taken to the streets, young white people, young Latino people, young Asian people, young African-American people. it 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 is a cross-section of, of this country, and it looks a lot like, frankly, the core base of the younger movement of voters who were the backbone of Barack Obama's back-to-back uh, majorities, winning majorities in this country that um, that eroded away uh, in 2016 from Democrats somewhat.
0: We've seen even Beyonce urging voters to dismantle a racist and unequal system in the US as she accepted a humanitarian award given by Michelle Obama recently. I want to dedicate this award to all of my brothers out there, all of my sisters out there inspiring me, marching and fighting for change. Now we have one more thing we need to do to walk in our true power, and that, is to vote. We have to vote like our life depends on it. You were talking about that energy within a movement, and obviously that's something that people want to sustain. But four months until an election—that's like light years in politics. How do you stop complacency?
2: Well, I think I think I think it's, it's it'll be incumbent on 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 the Democrat on the Democrats running for office. To, to harness this and and organize this and mobilize it. Look, if 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 the Biden campaign and, and Democrats up and down the ticket aren't using this issue that young people are are feel so strongly about to to engage them in the process of connecting their issue concerns to voting and participation, well then shame on them. Uh, if Democrats <laughs> It, the Democrats missed this moment to transfer this energy about racism and inequality in this country, uh, and, and, in, and in fact are uncomfortable and rather talk about more conventional issues, be it be it, be it raising the wages or college affordability. They're going to miss this moment, and then shame on them if they do. The country got spoiled with Obama. Because he really was a unique sort of a generation, once in a generation ca- type of leader who who gave them something to vote for in a way that, that was unique to them and they hadn't seen before. And they reacted to it. Um, I think Democrats are going to have to do a better job of of engaging these young people and giving them something to vote for, not
1: just voting against Donald Trump. Because we saw how that that, that worked out. Cornell, you mentioned your time with Barack Obama there. You worked with him. You wrote a book about him called A Black Man in the White House. When you look back on that eight years of a presidency, was that not the time to address these issues?
2: Was enough done? Is is enough ever done? But I, but I do think if you look back at that 12 years of, of, of the Obama presidency, and you don't see the sort of division and angst, outwardly division and angst that you see, now in this country, and I think the the governing of Donald Trump and how he's chose to govern, how he's in fact come to power along, you know, fanning that division is why we're seeing what we're seeing here in this country today and rolling back. I mean, one of, one of the first things that that the Trump administration and their Justice Department did was, in fact, roll back many of the criminal justice reform elements that. That the Obama uh, Justice Department was working on with individual localities uh, around around policing, um, so it was a clear signal to 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 to, to from them up to to their base that you know this was not something they they were interested in. Um, they were not interested in 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 reforming uh, you know policing or, or or dealing with any of these these issues of. Of institutional racism, and in fact, they were going to go in the opposite direction, and they did. And and that's part of the problem that we have right now. Uh, I think, look, you go to 2008, where Obama made a a historic breakthrough. But what what the breakthrough in 2008 was wasn't a post-racial breakthrough. It was a demographic breakthrough. Uh, Barack Obama. Garnered the same 43% of the white vote that John Kerry garnered, and John Kerry lost. The difference between between Barack Obama and John Kerry's coalition was several million more brown people. And look, we are a country that, where you know, in a short period of time, we're going to be awfully close to being a majority-minority country. And look, that raises anxiety for a lot of people who play the zero-sum racial game. We are challenged in, in over in America in a way that, that you all are not quite yet challenged um, uh, on that side of the pond, because we are, in fact, uh, a democracy that is going to, if we believe in the principles of democracy, we're going to have people who have not been in the majority and in charge of this democracy and so it's 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 a power transfer that no other democracy in modern times have has had has held has had to deal with and how we deal with it how we struggle with it how we overcome that is going to determine quite frankly whether the future belongs to America or we're going to digress and and not be a world power anymore, because this threatens to tear us apart. This is how America fails. It's not because we get invaded by some outside force. Lord knows we have enough tanks and guns and and warplanes and warships for that. And it's not because of terrorist attacks. No, it's because we Americans can't get along.
1: a tense standoff with police <laughs> as protesters tried to tear down a statue of former president Andrew Jackson. It's a racist confederate statue, okay, it should be
2: knocked down and put in a museum. Tonight
0: in Washington there is another standoff between authorities and protesters over a statue many see as an insult to African Americans. In the background of all of this brewing is the conversation surrounding black history in the United States and how we look at history, how we learn from it. Statues and monuments, which we pass by every single day, well, prior to lockdown, are being looked on with fresh eyes and new consideration.
1: Yeah, and we've seen this not just in the US and around the world, controversial statues, monuments, flags, things being pulled down, things being removed. I was down at the White House last week and a huge fence has been erected around Lafayette Park, which is right in front of the White House, and it's there to protect a statue of former US President Andrew Jackson, which protesters tried to pull down last week. Now, Andrew Jackson was a slave owner. He was responsible for the expulsion of Native Americans from their lands. Look, my own take on all of this is that I think the removal of controversial statues, monuments, if they're deemed racist, if they're deemed offensive, absolutely. But I think it should be done by city councils or authorities or elected officials in a structured way. Maybe you take the thing away, you put it in a museum, you do whatever you do with it. What I don't think is a good look for this movement is people wrapping chains and ropes around these statues and trying to rip them down. I think that coupled with calls to defund and scrap police departments. We have the setting up of police-free autonomous zones. If we can call it the more extreme end of this protest movement that we're seeing right now, I don't think it's doing the movement any favours. And I think it has given the likes of Donald Trump ammunition. He has used these negative aspects of the campaign to criticise the protesters and indeed to criticise the Democrats, sort of lumping them all into this category of anarchists, vandals and left-wing extremists.
0: Because he's come out swinging on this too.
1: Oh absolutely He has described The pulling down of statues As disgraceful He says those who do it Are vandals Mobs Tyrants And he's threatened them With increased prison sentences Of up to 10 years Actually interestingly Last week Donald Trump tweeted Threatening to use Serious force Against protesters Here in Washington DC But Twitter actually Flagged that tweet It's not the first time We've seen Twitter Block his tweets They flagged that particular one Last week Describing it as abusive
0: Okay let's go deeper on this With two men With important jobs and perspectives now I am just going to get uh Darren up on the line as well so we should have the four of us then so just bear with me one second okay so Darren you should be able to also hear my colleague Brian O'Donovan and also... Hi, Darren.
1: Brian here. However. Hi. How
4: are you doing?
0: And also, Good, thanks. You should be able to hear Hassan Jeffries as well, who is Professor of History at Ohio State University. Yes.
4: Hey, Darren. So how's it going, yes. man? I'm well. Professor Jeffries and I have met. I don't know if he remembers me. I recall.
1: I recall. I was glad to hear that you'd be on the line, too.
0: It is a yeah. small world. I thought Ireland <coughs> was small, but you guys know each other. <laughs> um, Look at
1: our little reunion here. This is great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: Um, Darren Moten, Professor of History at Alabama State University and Hassan Jeffries, Associate Professor of History at Ohio State University. Thank you both so much for joining us on States of Mind. Darren, if I can go to you first, you are in Montgomery, Alabama a major centre of events in the civil rights movement from the Montgomery bus boycott and the Selma to Montgomery marches this vantage point provides an important backdrop to understand history and political struggle. Can you paint a picture for us of what the public mood has been like there with the current protests over racial injustice?
4: So we have not had um, the large demonstrations that other cities have experienced. Um, However, um, in the wake of uh, George Floyd's death, What we have experienced is an exacerbation of discussions and debates um, surrounding the Confederacy and the meaning of the Confederacy or the symbols of the Confederacy. Um, The mayor of Birmingham announced that a Confederate statue in the city of Birmingham would be removed, which challenged The state law um, passed, I believe it was 2018, protecting um, monuments and the names of buildings and and statutes in the state. When the mayor decided um, that he would remove um, that statue in Birmingham, it had a sort of cascading effect. Um, The University of Alabama removed plaques from Classroom buildings, um, acknowledging and honoring students on that campus that served in the Confederate Army. There have been moves uh, or petitions to rename buildings on p- at public universities, and one name in particular, um, Bib Graves. Um, David Bib Graves was a former governor of the state of Alabama. He was also the Grand Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. He was a golden passport member of the Klan, which means he was a lifelong member um, of the Klan. Mm -hmm. And there have been uh, petitions to rename buildings at public universities that bear his name to the name of someone else. We actually have a women's residence hall um, on our campus that is named after Governor Graves.
0: While Hassan, you were in Ohio, further north, where 83% of the people there are white. Has the response to these protests been any different from what Darren has been describing there?
3: Well, here in Columbus and in the surrounding suburbs, um, we have seen a significant mobilization of people. Uh, it, it very much started with African-Americans connected with Black Lives Matter uh, movement, uh, taking to the streets uh, shortly after Memorial Day. Uh, but that core group quickly expanded uh, to include uh, significant numbers of uh, s- significant members from the white community in terms of numbers walking on and marching on downtown. But within a week, uh, very inter- interestingly enough, you began to see um, protests, marches, and demonstrations. Uh, calling for an an end to police violence and abuse in the surrounding suburbs. Now, this makes this moment particularly unique. Ohio, uh, Columbus, Ohio is the capital of Ohio, uh, but it's a a metropolitan area that includes 90 percent white surrounding suburbs. There's about four or five or six or seven of them. And you began to see in these upper middle class suburbs marches and protests, calling for a recognition of the humanity of black lives. That's qualitatively different than uh, certainly what was happening in other cities uh, you know, down south, but really that we've seen before. But in addition to that, uh, we've also seen the expansion. I think this is what parallels a little bit uh, what uh, Dr. Moulton was talking about down in Montgomery. Uh, we have had um, you know, the, the Columbus, the city, uh, is named in honor of Christopher Columbus. Uh, and so we have had our own sort of reckoning with statues and monuments and memorials. Uh, the city of Columbus, after some pressure, removed a statue of Christopher Columbus from, uh, that was out in front of city hall. The, uh, we have a major community college, uh, here, uh, just in the shadow of Ohio state, Columbus state, uh, community college. And they had a
1: centerpiece statue of Columbus, Christopher Columbus, that they removed as well. Hassan, can I bring you back to that wider issue of removing controversial statues and monuments? Is there anything to be said, you're a history professor, is there anything to be said for keeping some of these statues and monuments in place to educate, to learn, to spark debate, and to maybe not to learn from the lessons of the past and not repeat the mistakes of the past? Is there any justification, do you think, in keeping these controversial images in place?
3: I think, keep, I think place matters. And so when we say keeping them in place, when we're talking about where these monuments and memorials, the, the, the places or spaces that they occupy, that is problematic. It's not a question that we, it's critically important that we learn from the past, right? From, from what was done, you know, how, and, and how things were done. But when we take these symbols of white supremacy, of, of, of colonialism, of oppression, and we put them in these places of honor, in our public um, spaces, they are, uh, by definition, signaling the acceptance of certain principles. And so I think it is critically important that we remove them from these places of honor if we are serious as a community, as a society, as a nation, serious about our commitment to equality
1: and justice. Darren Moulton, we've seen lots of images on the news of chains and ropes being wrapped around these monuments and statues and being ripped down by protesters and police moving them out and Donald Trump very quick to call these people thugs and vandals and mobs. Is there a danger that while, yes, the removal of these statues and monuments is a positive thing and should be done, when it is done by a group of protesters with chains and ropes, it damages the cause. And what, in fact, we should be seeing is maybe a scenario where a city council or an authority agrees to remove this in a structured way, and put it in a museum. Do you think the protester dragging it down with a chain isn't a good look?
4: So I think for people who are opposed um, to these symbols and statues, the optics really is sort of irrelevant. I'm thinking right now about the young lady that literally climbed the flagpole um, in Columbia, South Carolina, to remove uh, the Confederate uh, flag that once flew um, on the grounds of the state capitol um, in Columbia, South Carolina. I think she could care less about the optics. These, these symbols are an affront um, to many um, African Americans. And, and see, when we see these symbols, we don't think of just the Confederacy. You know, we think of the countless um, uh, marches during the Civil Rights Movement, where people march um, past uh, whites standing on the side of highways or on sidewalks or, or whites who drove by in their pickup trucks or whatever with these flags flying. You know, I, I, I think, um, you know, because the situation is what it is right here, right now, excuse me, that is, people are 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 angry. Um, they're hurt. Um, they're frustrated. Um, I I just think uh, people aren't waiting uh, for city councils and and county commissions and governors and mayors um, to decide. Um, because to be quite honest, aside from um, Mayor Wolfen in in Birmingham not too many mayors have really stepped up to the plate and said, you know, look, you don't have to tear this statue down, we'll remove it um, and we'll just put it someplace else like in a museum or, or someplace.
0: Uh, Hassan, and,
3: and Brian, if,
4: oh, because, c- could I just add something real quick? Oh
0: no, of course, fire away, Hassan.
3: Uh, it's not like black folks suddenly woke up and said, hey, let's remove these a couple of years ago. They, you know, they were problematic from day one. You always didn't have the space, the political opportunity, the means, uh, to contest their placement and position in, in in the public square, but people have been trying to negotiate and remove these literally for a century. And so, what we're seeing now uh, is people taking to the streets and saying, "Time's up. We've waited patiently. We've 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 showed how aggrieved we are, how painful these symbols to white supremacy are. And if you won't take do what's necessary to remove them, then we will take it upon ourselves to do what needs to be done."
0: I'm very conscious as well, you know, that we are two white Irish presenters here. And as two African-American historians, you've touched on it there. If you don't mind me asking, when you cross paths with one of these statues, monuments or symbols, everything we've been talked about, does that stir up emotions for you without your historical hat on you? Oh,
4: absolutely. I, I, you know... uh, and I'm always struck by the wording. And I think um, uh, Professor uh, Jeffries will agree with me here. I remember years ago, my family and I moved to Alabama in 1996. And I remember years ago, we took um, some relatives of, um, to Selma because uh, we wanted them to see the Edmund Pettus Bridge and 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 we wanted them to see the city of Selma given what happened in 65. There was a historical marker that was at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And on the um, historical marker was a description of what happened on that bridge um, in March of 1965. What, two, two words were not on that marker. And the two words that went on that marker, and I'm sure everybody has those two words in mind, It's Bloody Sunday. And I stood there and I thought to myself, my God, how can you describe what happened on this bridge in March of 1965 and not put the words Bloody Sunday on the marker? That marker was changed um, in 2016 prior to the arrival of then President Barack Obama. Um, because I think the city of Selma was embarrassed that they would have the sitting president to visit Selma, Alabama, who was there in part to talk about the legacy of Bloody Sunday and to talk about the fact that it was those foot soldiers that made his election as president of the United States possible. And you cannot have uh, a marker at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge that does not mention Bloody sun. There,
3: there is... I mean, I think we have to key in on the, the politics of public memorials. And, and that's just not the representation of the, the, physical, the physical representation of the statues, as, as we often sort of... What does Columbus mean? What does, you know, Nathan Bedford Forrest mean? But, you know, the wording that we use right, says a lot about how we as a community, as a society want, and re- want, want this particular moment, want our history to be remembered and how honest we are about the past. And, and, and that's, the, that's what I think African-Americans have been fighting for. And you, and you had to ask the question a little bit earlier about, well, how does it feel to walk past these, 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 these symbols, these symbols of white supremacy, these symbols of hate? You know, for me, it, it, it's, you know, a community, a society be, not being willing to deal with the past, not, you know, being truthful and honest, not only about what these symbols might mean to people today, but what they meant when they were put up in the first place. People often talk about the need for truth and reconciliation, or at least for reconciliation, but don't ever want to deal with the truth. We are not going to be able to move forward as, a, as small communities, as large communities, as a nation, as the state of Ohio, as the state of Alabama, unless we have a true uh, a reckoning with our past and, and, and why and how the ways that the symbols that we have carried from the past into the present um, impact the, our relationships with one another today.
0: First off, Brian, happy 4th of July weekend. I'm sure the celebrations will be quite dull over there, actually, compared to more yeah.
1: Absolutely. Very different compared to normal. Now, we are being told that there will be a fireworks display here in Washington, D.C., which is always very impressive. But yes, it will be far more low key. And there's big concerns here, you know. Mm. Coronavirus cases are spiking again. A lot of concern that a lot of it is down to, you know, gatherings, the weather getting better, people going to beaches, people gathering for barbecues, going to bars. Big concerns that the big holiday weekend this weekend, 4th of July, will lead to that increase in people. So, yes, while events are taking place, I think the advice to people will be to you know attend them cautiously do your social distancing do your mask wearing all that kind of thing
0: yeah it's interesting how we're opening up here it's almost you're closing down there again the contrasting between ireland and the united states but if people have time over the next week as they wait for the next states of mind podcast we have some good news that we now have our own email
1: Yes, very fancy. We've entered the world of email. Next, it'll be a MySpace account, uh, Jackie, or whatever. Bebo. Uh, Bebo. (laughs) Are we
0: going going back 20 years?
1: (laughs) Yes, we finally have an email account.
0: Yeah, so any questions, comments, or anything you want to know about the US election, terminology, people, how things work, email us on statesofmind at rte.ie. Very easy email, statesofmind at rte.ie. And we'll go through them. Uh, But any fan mail for Brian, though, that can go to his personal email account or his Twitter.
1: Absolutely. Well, I have the fan mail special email account set up as well (laughs) that I can give people later if they need. Such is the inundation I get. I get full mailbox warnings all the time.
0: I am waiting for the pings (laughs) for the next while. Listen, Brian, chat to you next week.
1: Thanks, Jackie. Chat to you next week. Bye bye.